But if we don't disrupt these ideas or these notions, these norms of this dominant ideology, then what we'll be at the risk of is problematizing and pathologizing Black and Indigenous students for not fitting in. And so it's really important for us to understand these spaces are inherently racist. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Caitlin Thiel, and welcome to our elective series, System Leadership in Healthy Schools. I want to start by sharing that I'm a white settler, recording today from Amiskwichi, Weskahigan, or Edmonton, on Treaty 6, which is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, Nakota Sioux, and the Métis Nation of Alberta Regions 1, 2, 3, and 4. I want to acknowledge the ancestral and unceded territories of all the Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people that call this land home and who have been stewards of the landways and the waterways since time immemorial. The System Leadership in Healthy Schools series aims to empower school system leaders to improve a wide variety of outcomes, maximizing student and staff well-being. The elective series is brought to you by the Canadian Healthy Schools Alliance. The Alliance is a network of organizations on a mission to promote health and well-being in school communities across Canada. The Canadian Healthy Schools Alliance has recently launched the new Canadian Healthy School Standards to support leaders and schools in growing their healthy school communities. Check out episode one in this series to hear more about the Alliance and the journey to develop the standards. Today, we're joined by Rohan Thompson, and we're going to discuss the necessity of addressing the dominance of whiteness, racialization, and racism as we work to achieve healthy school communities. We will discuss harms that come from systems that normalize racism, actions and practices to center anti-racism, and the importance of accountability measures. Rohan is a social work therapist, psychotherapist. He is currently the Assistant Director of Indigenous Education, Anti-Racism, Anti-Oppression, and Community Relationships with the Peel District School Board. Some of his responsibilities are policy development, equitable hiring practices and programs, community partner relationship building, and consulting with senior leadership on a number of equity and anti-racism issues. Rohan is also the owner and lead therapist at Breakthrough Counseling and Wellness, where he works with individuals from African, Caribbean, and Black communities using a client-centered, trauma-informed, anti-racist, strengths-based approach. Formal roles of Rohan include Workplace Equity Manager with the Peel District School Board and Manager of Communications and Community Engagement for the Waterloo Region Crime Prevention Council, during which time Rohan was instrumental in working with the community the local school board, and students to develop Black Brilliance, a Black youth-led initiative that brings attention, education, and advocacy to address anti-Black racism that African, Caribbean, and Black-identified high school students in Waterloo Region face. In his spare time, I don't know how you would have any, (laughs) Rohan is also passionate about the sport of football and has been a youth football coach for over 13 years. Before we get started, a quick reminder to our listeners that podcast learning is mobile. So we invite you to get active, get moving, or just do a little something for yourself to nurture your well-being while you listen. Welcome to the PodClass Electives, Rohan. I am so excited to have you here. That is quite an impressive resume. While our listeners are thinking about ways to tend to their wellness, I was wondering if you can start by sharing your favorite ways to nurture your wellness. Thanks, Caitlin. I appreciate the opportunity to to be here, and thank you for the introduction and the land acknowledgement. Thanks, really, really important. But before I answer the first question, I'd like to take that, if it's okay, if I yeah. can just take an opportunity to add on a little bit to the to the land acknowledgement. Please. Sort of important is that, uh, you know, as we gather to have this conversation here about the impact of structural racism and healthy communities and, and anti-Black racism uh, in education and in the school communities, I think it's also important as we open with the land acknowledgement around uh, the impact of colonization and anti-indigeneity, uh, that we also acknowledge that uh, many people of African descent who, who are not settlers, but who, whose ancestors were 
forcibly displaced mm-hmm. uh, as part of the transatlantic slave trade, and they are brought here against their will and, and made to work on these lands. And we believe that advancing Indigenous sovereignty is deeply and inextricably linked to mm-hmm. Black liberation, uh, and remain and we remain committed to, to to both. So, just wanted to sort of tag on to thank you that yeah so first question good one uh, around what do i do to nurture my own sort of wellness lots uh, <laughs> i watch a lot of stand-up uh, comedies um, oh. I, I enjoy those very much i think laughing is very healthy from a sort of physical activity perspective i go to the gym pretty regularly during covid uh, my wife and i decided to invest in a in a peloton bike so mm. that, that gets a lot of use, you know, things such as uh, we aren't strict on how we eat, but we really do pay attention to the food that we digest and we put inside of us and can't minimize some intentional well-being practices. So journaling, mm-hmm. uh, positive affirmations, all those sorts of stuff, some dedicated time for that. So, yeah, those are the things that I try to do regularly to sort of keep me grounded. Oh, that's awesome. It's nice that you kind of like had the full gamut there. Like you touched on yeah. a lot of dimensions and do you and your wife bike more in the mornings or the evenings or do you have a routine there? Yeah, we're kind of, things happen first thing in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen first thing in the morning. Um, you know, uh, it, it tends not to have a, the success rate dips. So, okay. Good to know. Yeah. There, you, there, you know yourself. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I read your bio for our listeners out there, and it is vast and it's extremely, you know, impressive. Mm -hmm. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about about your work, about your current roles, and just a little bit about your story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great questions. So let me just say this for for all the listeners: I am not uh, a traditional educator. Mm -hmm. I'm not a certified teacher Mm -hmm. um, or anything along those lines. My my background is in sociology and and social work, and in in particular, have a long background in sort of community development, uh, program implementation program evaluation, policy analysis. And so that's sort of how I come to the work. And so I've really worked, you know, in communities with marginalized groups, with uh, really trying to amplify community voice and bring resources into spaces that are, are significantly lacking. So that's sort of how I come to this right now in my role as, to short form, it's Assistant Director of Equity and Community Relationships. I manage a couple of portfolios on the team But I think more importantly, um, my role is to be the critical voice in the room whenever I'm at the table to really center um, issues around anti-Blackness and white supremacy and structural racism and and really ask some critical questions around if what we're trying, if this is what we're trying to accomplish, this action that we've identified, is it what's going to get us there? Hmm. And if if the answer is no, then what's stopping us, right? And so that's really really how I, I see my role more than anything. Um, my role, in addition to really connect with community, to try to have a sense of, uh, I mean, community has the ability to advocate for, for itself. And mm-hmm. I don't think the work of staff in inside the system could happen without the strength of community. Um, I think community gives us the impetus, right? Mm-hmm. They show us the way. And so I, I have the pleasure of working with some very fierce and brilliant community advocates. And so I get to amplify their voices and their concerns inside the institution. So there's there's a lot of synergy there in, in the work. So so that's kind of that's kind of the gig. I mean you know, to I could bore people and you know, there, are staff, there are staff teams. I supervise folks. Yeah. You touched on and responsible for some program implementation, evaluation, and you know, policy writing and stuff. But I think those are sort of the mechanical pieces. But I think the essence of what I what I do is to try to be that very critical voice in the space. Mm-hmm. Like you're like poking, you're poking change, poking yeah. reflection. Yeah. yeah. And, and saying that, saying the things that, that, you know, uh, we were in a meeting just the other day and, and we were talking about currently doing a lot of work to disrupt and dismantle systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And we we're talking about some key actions and, and where we are and with stuff. And, and we were talking about it in absence of the fact that we're doing this work within 
a white supremacist space. Yeah. We're doing this within a culture that absolutely is resistant to this work. And, and so we can't talk about the work as though it's just neutral. Mm-hmm. Right? We need to ac- actually acknowledge that we're doing this work and it's really vital. And of course, we need to give status updates, but also acknowledge that we're doing this work within a space and culture that historically has been anti-Black. And yeah. so what are, the, what are the implications of that, right? So. And I, I think that leads really well into my next question, which is, I, I've heard you've been quoted as saying that we can't have healthy school communities without first addressing the dominance of whiteness, racialization, and racism. So can mm-hmm. you, I think you just highlighted it, that it happened just this past week in a meeting, and I think it happens across our school communities. Yeah, and across the province of Ontario in education and across the country in education and, and really every every institution across our, our country, right? So what do I mean or what am I talking about? And I'm always sort of, I get the heebie-jeebies when somebody said, you've been quoted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so when we, when we look at education, I think we first need to um, acknowledge that our education system is founded on racism and racist ideals, mm-hmm. right? And we've never truly reconciled that. And, and so, for example, in Ontario, the last segregated school closed in 1965, right? Like, I, I work with people who were born in 65, right? Wow. You know, the last segregated school in the country, in Halifax, I believe, closed in 1983. Wow. Right? Like, I think E.T. came out in 82. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so, so it's not like it's so far in yeah. our rear mirror. And I think it's really important that we understand that. Right? And so the issues and the outcomes from whiteness and structural racism, I think it's also important to say that they're not the fault of, of Black and Indigenous students. Right? right. Um, black and Indigenous students are not deficient in any way. They're not broken. Yeah. They're not less than. Right? But if we don't disrupt these ideas or these notions these norms of this dominant ideology, then what we'll be at the risk of is problematizing and pathologizing Black and Indigenous students for not fitting into this typology. And so it's really important for us to understand these spaces are inherently racist. And so just to give you an example, and I won't tell the whole story, and where whiteness comes into play and why we need to disrupt it is in a school system and school board out here in Ontario. You know, I'm not telling lies. You know, this was in the news. Mm -hmm. We had a black student who was of Caribbean descent and brought some food from their particular culture. They brought to school was something called a roti, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Brought it for lunch. And as a result of racism and anti-blackness and, you know, having a particular typology of what is a healthy, nourishing lunch, that particular school then proceeded to report that student to the Children's Aid Society or to to child welfare. And so now that family was now involved with child welfare system, right? And so so I just share that example, and and there are numerous, numerous examples Mm -hmm. of how the dominance of whiteness and the normalization of that works against Black, Indigenous, and racialized students in education. And then, of course, we have the long-lasting legacy and history of our residential school system, and of note, somewhere around 6,000 unmarked graves Mm. of of Indigenous students who died in the hands and in the care of the residential school system, right? And so that wasn't just yesterday, right? Again, these the dominant ideas that give rise to what I just mentioned, they are still present in today's school system. So it's not neutral. No. Right? And so this is why we continue to see black and indigenous students struggle compared to their their white peers. And so if we want to have a healthy school community, we need to pay very close attention to the historical foundation and not just run from the fact that our education system built on white supremacy. Because if we're not grounded in that understanding, then we're flawed from the start. Mm-hmm. So one action would be to increase our understanding of that and acknowledge acknowledge own it yeah. <laughs> right? like absolutely it wasn't it wasn't just yesterday because you know when we look at you know some it's of the today. records and uh, yeah and, and and much of the same struggle and the arguments and the concerns 
that that black and indigenous communities are fighting for in regards to you know education and deliberation right are the exact same things from decades ago yeah i guess i want to i I sort of just want to trouble the idea or this notion that there has been a particular awakening around these issues and that we are now learning like this is the moment and it's like nah it's just it's just now that the mainstream is catching up right (laughs) <laughs> right? And, and, and Black and Indigenous communities have been fighting for these things since the formation of this country, right? And we'll be here again if we don't. Yeah. So I think it's really important that if we're wanting to really do this work, then we absolutely have to not only have an understanding of the historical context, but it's not just who we were, it's who we still remain to be. And you touched on some of this when you mentioned the Black students and students of color and Indigenous students, Mm -hmm. some of the challenges they face. But can you elaborate Mm -hmm. more on some of the harms that come from systems like education that normalize racism and the health impacts specifically to students in our schools? Yeah. So when we think about our school communities... We're in the business of supporting students and student success, right? But then there are also staff, right? Uh, And there are also parents, caregivers, and community, right? And so these are all the folks who are impacted by anti-Blackness and structural racism. So there's not just, you know, sort of city limits on this where it's just the students who are impacted. It's also the staff. The same racism that impacts the students is the same racism that is impacting the staff, which is the same racism that is impacting the community and and parents and caregivers. It's like an ecosystem. Yeah. So in all of that, one of the key concerns or, or some of the outcomes of that is a clear devaluing of a whole group of people, mm-hmm. right? That in very explicit ways, we are saying to groups of people that you are not a value. We see Black Indigenous students are not reaching their full capacity and that they're being pushed out of the education system and and pushed into the criminal justice system, being pushed into the child welfare system. So it's not as though, you know, the impact of anti-Blackness and we're saying these kids are being pushed out, but they're just not disappearing. They're going somewhere Um, and they're being pushed into these really conian, expensive, and violent systems. And so when we look at things such as graduation rates, when we look at things such as suspension, when we look at streaming, when we look at ways of which, you know, students are showing up in enhanced programs who are not showing up in enhanced programs. These are, when we do have the disaggregated race-based data and we don't have it everywhere, but when we do have it, we see the same themes from board to board. And we see that disproportionately black students, indigenous students are lagging behind non-black, non-indigenous students, right? And again, it's not because of any deficiency of black Indigenous students. No. And part of how this, this occurs is that around the, these tropes or negative stereotypes about Black bodies in particular, right? And that Black bodies will be seen and treated as something to be feared. Hmm. Black bodies are something to be disposed of, the things that are of low value. And so, so when we don't see the full humanity in Black bodies, then it gives privilege to treat those bodies as less than. And so this ongoing violence, right, this ongoing violence, you know, it eats away at Black and Indigenous communities and students, families around their identities and sense of self, self-esteem, mental health, well-being. There is a Black American psychologist who I follow, um, does lots of really great work, brilliant gentleman by the name of Kenneth Hardy. Kenneth talks about the mental health impacts or the racial trauma, racial trauma wounds. You know, he has this one quote and it's really powerful. You know, racial oppression is a traumatic form of interpersonal violence, which can lacerate the spirit, scar the soul and puncture the psyche of Black people. Wow. Right. And so he has a model of the impact of the racial violence. And, and it's kind of like a four part model. He talks about internalized devaluation. Right. Yeah. So being in receipts of this, you know, we begin to internalize and believe. Right. Mm-hmm. The assaulted sense of self. So now we are because of the internalization, we are actually now beginning to abuse ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. The internalized voicelessness. Right. This is this is a particular trauma wound where it's like we feel as though we don't have voice. 
right? And then the last racial wound that he speaks to is the wound of rage and to be differentiated from anger because anger is kind of at the surface level. It's quick. It's, you know, yeah. it, it comes and it goes, but rage simmers beneath the surface wow. and it's there and it's long lasting. And when it comes, it comes with a particular energy that is much greater than just simply anger. So when we're thinking about some of the impacts, these are some of the mental health impacts that we're talking about. So a significant concern in regards to systemic racism in education is that it further entrenches and normalizes white supremacy and structural racism within the broader society, right? So when we think of the major sectors uh, that shape culture of this country, you know, we think about education, we think about criminal justice, we yeah. think about health care. And these institutions are supposed to be a reflection uh, of the ideals that we hold in society. And so if these sectors continue to be, and I quote a community advocate who I had the pleasure of working with, and he has since passed, a brother by the name of Kala Iliomade, Kala would often use the word that these spaces, um, these sectors are bastions of racism. And so if we don't disrupt these spaces and if we don't dismantle and recreate and build something that is much more equitable, then it's a clear indication that our broader society is just that, right? right. It is racist. It is anti-Black. Right? Wow. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us recognize those things like the graduation rates and the, the system mm. pieces, but that's a really interesting model that you shared. I wonder if we can link to that. Um, yeah, that is yeah. a really powerful quote that you shared. Mm-hmm. So this podcast is brought to you by the Alliance and we are mm-hmm. a network of organizations on a mission to promote health and well-being in schools. So mm-hmm. what does a healthy school community mean to you? Yeah. Great. I think a healthy school community to me, a couple of things. So generally is that, you know, all students are thriving and doing well, right? That generally that they have what they need in order to be successful. And that doesn't mean that they all have the same things, but they have what they need. I think a healthy school community is where the community is not separate and apart uh, from, from schools. Yes. Um, they are very much embedded and part of the fabric and helping to cultivate, you know, that space that produces good student outcomes and, and good student experiences. Um, it's a space where parents and caregivers are engaged, mm-hmm. right? So generally speaking, right? Yeah. But I also think we have to get a little bit more granular when we're talking about healthy school spaces. Specifically, a healthy school community to me is where there are no longer uh, negative disparities and disproportionalities among students, staff, and community. And so this is where we have to uh, sort of move away from the all language yeah. and what what does our data tell us, right? Mm-hmm. We see that there are particular groups who are experiencing uh, marginalization, then we need to then direct our resources specifically uh, and our attention and our policy and our practices to disrupt that so that we, we are no longer having these disparities. And lastly, I think it's really important that we understand that racism and acts of racism and structural racism isn't going to disappear overnight, right? Um, It's been here for a couple of centuries. And so when racism does show up in our spaces, do we have the mechanisms to hold the system and hold individuals accountable? And so, for example, if a family um, or a student or a staff is experiencing racism, is there a mechanism where that they can go and report it? Mm-hmm. It will be heard. It will be taken seriously. They won't be punished or penalized for highlighting it, uh, that it will be investigated and it will be dealt with appropriately. And there will be some form of report back to the system in regards to these things. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about a healthy school community, I think when we're talking about accountability, you know, this is a big piece that we typically miss. When things have gone awry and when things are going awry, do we have a process that allows us to investigate that, track it, address it, and report back broadly to the system, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to back us up. I feel like you talked about a lot there and we're going to dig into Mm -hmm. them a little bit. So you talked about, you know, schools really having an understanding um, mm-hmm. of like indicators to, to support mm-hmm. if they're a healthy school. So can you walk us through what some metrics or indicators are key when we're talking about healthy schools that center anti-racism? 
Right. So I think first, if we're talking about what might be some metrics and some indicators would be around student voice. Yeah. Right. Mm. What are, what, you know, so we, we always want to go to the metrics and we forget like, you know, narratives, you know, are just as important. Right. Students so students are you know, essential. Yeah. Yeah. This is this kind of what we get up and we go to work for. Right. <laughs> So, so student voice, like, you know, are we asking students? So, so how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. do you, do you feel valued? Do you feel as though you're seen, right? Do you feel as though you're giving the tools to reach your full potential mm-hmm. and capacity, right? Do you feel safe here? And, and so, you know, if we're asking students these questions regularly and we're reporting back, that will give us some metrics around how we're doing. Mm-hmm. Is this a healthy school community, right? If we're looking at a healthy school, what are some of the metrics? Again, if we're looking at student outcomes, what are some of the metrics around student outcomes, right? So graduation rates straight off the bat, right? Who's in academic and who's in applied, right? Right off the bat, right? How are we streaming folks, right? You know, when we're thinking about standardized testing, who is performing well, who is not performing well, we wouldn't see these disproportionate outcomes with particular groups. So if we're talking about healthy communities and we're talking about metrics, you know, we have to look at where are the disproportionalities, right? And that's where we need to turn, turn our attention to. And track those across time. And, and track those across time and put in the interventions and, and implement those and, and evaluate those measures. Because often, you know, we come up with programs and we just do them and we don't measure whether or not they changed anything, if they changed what they were intended to do, if they did, what were some of those outcomes? And, and if they didn't change anything, why? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the healthy community framework that is kind of foundational to this conversation, yes. you know, that whole evaluation piece is very key. So it's not only the metrics, but we have programs, we have policies, but then are we measuring those things? Because the things that get measured are the things that get attention. Mm-hmm. And then reiterating based on yeah. those outcomes. Exactly. Are we communicating that back through the system? Are we communicating back to the community? Are we sharing that information in a way that is digestible? So, so for example, one of the ways that systems sort of sit on this information is we report things in board meetings and board reports and, and all those sorts of stuff. And, and unless you have the privilege to sit through a four-hour, three-hour board meeting and you have two hours to read through all of the board minutes, how do you get that information, mm-hmm. right? And so I think systems need to find ways to make that information more accessible yeah. uh, so that communities can digest and so that they can continue to be informed and advocate the way that they need to. Hmm. I think a healthy school community embraces student voice and embraces community voice because students and community voice will let the board or let the school community knows what they're not doing right Mm -hmm. and they will let you know when you're doing it correctly and i think as a board that is like a free consultant yeah and if you're listening the change that can happen exactly and so if we really truly um, leaned into that uh, mm-hmm. community and student voice as an asset, I think we're trending towards a healthy school community. And that, so that would be a significant sort of characteristic or an element of what a healthy school community could look like. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about graduation rates and, and recognizing mm-hmm. who's going into applied mm-hmm. versus academics. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. can school boards start when beginning to collect segregated race-based data to help inform those metrics? Yeah. So I think one of the first things, and it's a, it's a really serious exercise, right? Yeah. Because a couple of things with data is, and again, I'm not a research expert, right. but having worked with research around a number of initiatives is that if you want to make data-informed decisions, then it's kind of really off of the strength of the quality of the data that you collect, okay. right? Who is interpreting the data is also really important, yeah. right? Who is helping to develop the framework around which would be the basis of what is collected and how it's collected? And so school boards aren't necessarily experts in that work. 
And I think before we even jump on the, hey, we're just going to collect disaggregated race-based data, it's like, what do you want the data for? What are you going to do with it? Whom are the people? Who are the experts? Who are the content area experts? Who has the key competencies around the collection of disaggregated race-based data, what to do with it, and how to house it, how to protect it, right? So, you know, when we think about where we might get some frameworks or or where we might get some direction, the Ontario Anti-Racism Direct and their anti-racism data standards is a place to start for school boards. But school communities are also connected to universities and colleges Mm -hmm. that have research departments. Uh, There are experts in the community. And I think it would be really wise before a school begins the journey of the collection of disaggregated race-based data, that there's also a community engagement sort of component to it that speaks to the community around this is what we're going to begin to do and why Mm -hmm. we're going to on this journey of figuring out community will be involved. Mm -hmm. Right. And we will report back periodically at these particular intervals around where we're at with the development of this framework, along with the collection, the analysis, and the reporting back to it. If school boards just begin this journey or this exercise all into themselves, they're simply reproducing sort of the power, control, and dominance that they've always had over communities. It's interesting, you know, this is, Mm -hmm. I recorded now already with Dr. Pamela Toulouse Mm -hmm. and with Mel and Mm -hmm. and now I'm happy to be sitting here with you and there's definitely a theme and Mm -hmm. so if system leaders are listening to this series I hope they're hearing the same theme which is Mm -hmm. connect with community they are your resource yeah yeah and should be very grateful to community for extending their wisdom to the system and guiding the system Mm -hmm. right so, so often, you know, systems take a very defensive posture when challenged or when being corrected or coached by community and students, when really, you know, our position or our posture should be that of significant gratitude. Yeah. I've made some mistakes in my work. And when community has come out and corrected me, I have been better as a result. Yes. We grow. Right? We're uncomfortable. Yeah. And the work gets better. And so ultimately, if we're here around, again, better student outcomes and better student experiences and and disrupting the disproportionalities that Black and Indigenous students experience, then we absolutely need to embrace those who hold knowledge, right? And mm-hmm. and so, you know, when we're thinking about white supremacy, we think about knowledge comes in this really finite, particular, rigid kind of way, right? Like you have formal education and you have letters behind your name and you've gone to this particular institution, but we don't hold community in such high regard. And then there's people who have the lived experience yeah. who know their living condition better than just about anybody else does. Definitely. Not saying that formalized education is not to be valued and it doesn't bring something to the table. We also have to equally and equitably hold in such high regard and high esteem community voice. Agreed. So I want to, we dove into the metrics. Thank you. And I want to back us up and dive into the second thing you, you mentioned when we talked about what is needed for healthy schools and you talked about accountability. So can we dive a little bit deeper into the importance of accountability measures and how policy and structural reform uh, will lead to healthier school communities? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So I think accountability at the end of the day is probably the most important sort of ingredient in this work. And for some reason, it seems to get left out, right? And so it gets left out in regards to the the disruption of systemic racism. So here's what I mean. The system does understand accountability Mm -hmm. and the system understands who to hold accountable and who not to hold accountable. So when we see across the country from various school boards, and when we look at data sets from so many different sectors, but if we're just talking about education, we see when we have disaggregated race-based data, time and time again, we see Black students are suspended at greater rates. Mm -hmm. They're expelled at greater rates. They're suspended for things like wearing hoodies and hoop earrings and wearing hats, (laughs) right? So so I say that simply to say that the system does understand accountability and it knows who to hold accountable and who not hold accountable. And But we also see across education, across the country, for example, number of school boards where there have been reported incidents 
of educators using the N-word in class. And we see time and time again, those educators are not sanctioned, right? Not to the same degree where Black students are. Uh, we see often, you know, those teachers still hold on to their roles. Yeah. And so we, we see that the system chooses. Yes not to hold particular folks accountable for their actions. So I think when we're talking about accountability, I think it's really important to note that systems do know how to hold folks accountable. It's who they choose to hold accountable, right? But I think it's really key that systems do have mechanisms of accountability as we're trying to disrupt anti-Blackness because it has to be a little bit more than just the moral imperative. Yeah. Uh, it can't be just, you know, if I choose to do this, right. right? The things that we mandate are the things that we say loud and clear are important, mm-hmm. right? So we mandate wearing of seatbelts, right? Yeah. We say that that's important, right? We mandate um, not smoking in public facilities because we say that's important. We mandate what goes in our water. We got we have rules and mandates around this, this, that, and the other in order to keep our society safe and keep things orderly. In addition to that, it also signifies what we value, who we value, the things that we hold important. And so if we're not holding individuals and systems accountable and have systems of accountability around racism, it says loud and clear that we really aren't that serious about it. Yeah. Um, we probably don't even really believe that exists. And even if we do believe it exists, we're really not that interested in it. And it, it almost contributes to those, I mean, well, it does contribute to those mm-hmm. those harms you mentioned earlier the, with the framework. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because there's nothing that is a deterrent yeah. you know, to the performance of that particular violence, right? So some of the ways that we can begin to hold folks accountable is, one is we need to be really clear what the mandate is, yes. right? So. Our boards explicit around their mandate for the disruption of systemic racism and anti-blackness. I think that's one of the very first things. Mm-hmm. Number two, in terms of accountability, and I mentioned it earlier, is that we have processes where when people are experiencing racism, there's a mechanism that they can report to and they will be safe and supported through that process, that there will be a process of investigation. Mm -hmm. This is where it comes in. And it's not just anybody who's doing the investigation. It's where we have people who are qualified to be able to do that type of investigation. And then there's a report back around what was the outcome of those things. Because often these things happen, people come to learn about them, and then it's silent. We have no idea what the system did in regards to that. Did they even do anything, right? And then that just breeds distrust. It breeds a particular type of apathy, right? Mm -hmm. And it can have a chilling effect. And what I mean is that it can impact the community in a way is that, well, when these things happened before, the system didn't do anything. And so it's happening to me now. Why am I even going to report? And so the impact of not having these mechanisms in place can result in less people reporting when they're experiencing violence. So then it, it is hidden. And then the right? system might think, oh, we, we're good. No, no, we don't have a problem. Yeah, no one's reporting anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and which brings me back to the question earlier, you know, when we were talking about metrics, well, we don't have a racism problem. Well, have you asked your non-white staff how it's going? Mm-hmm. You probably haven't, right? And, and just the denial of asking that question, then the racism is then hidden. So, for example, when we think about disaggregated race-based data, well, if you're not collecting disaggregated race-based data, then you can't see where the disparity and disproportionalities are happening. So it's easy to say we don't have a racist problem because we actually don't have any data to support it. Because that's white supremacy, right? When it says, we're we're experiencing racism, they'll say, prove it. (laughs) But if we're not collecting the data to show the disparities, then they're like, well, you don't have any data. So how do we know what you're saying is true? It's just your idea. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And then we have to sort of codify this stuff because what happens often is we have equity champions, we have people who are really about this life, they're about this work, and they really, but ultimately people move. Yes. We have superstar principals and educators who are really equity focused and about the disruption of systemic racism, um, and then they move on. Yeah. Right. And then that culture leaves with them. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent on boards to have strategies that have full sort of implementation and evaluation plans. I think that it's important that there are policies and protocols that are aligned 
what the strategy goals and those policies are written in a way that really allow you to assess whether or not things are happening the way that they're supposed to happen. And then there absolutely needs to be a culture shift. There needs to be a will, Mm -hmm. right? There needs to be a will to enact these policies and practices to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think you said it earlier, that's not going to happen overnight. No. And when we're talking about accountability, I think it's really to talk about how in education, a number of systems come into play here or are complicit or mm-hmm. are, are working with each other. Right. So we have school boards. Yeah. We have unions. Right. Because remember, in education, this, the current education wasn't built with black and indigenous children in mind. No. And yes, we have unions and and my comments here are not to disparage unions and say that unions have not been good for workers. But I'm also not going to pretend that black and indigenous members in unions aren't experiencing racism. Hmm. And so this is how systems collude and conspire together to reproduce racism, structural racism and these negative outcomes. So. If we step aside from accountability, what about Mm -hmm. composition of school staff? So I assume this might be another metric that schools want to collect, but how does, Mm -hmm. first of all, how does Mm -hmm. the composition of school staff impact outcomes for black and indigenous students and students of color? Yeah, yeah, good, uh, important metric, (laughs) right? And so... In many ways, and this has been sort of well-documented and well-researched, and and in fact, at Peel District School Board, we have a a particular initiative around Mm -hmm. um, the recruitment and hiring of Black and Indigenous educators. But I think in more broadly, in a number of our hiring processes, is the acknowledgement and understanding that we need more Black and Indigenous staff in positions across the organization for a number of reasons. But if we're just talking about classrooms... Non-white children and white children benefit from seeing more non-white staff in education or in positions of power, right? It helps to disrupt the notion or the internalized racism or the internalized supremacy that says white bodies are the only sense of knowledge, leadership, and power, Mm -hmm. right? And so when non-white students see themselves reflected in the power structure, they can begin to imagine themselves in those positions. When we look at sort of at some of the student outcomes and student data in related to staff composition, we see that Black and Indigenous students experience better student outcomes when they are taught by same race educators. And so if we're really at the end of the day here about student outcomes, then our schools and our school boards would be reflective of our student and community populations if we're really you know, it's right there. And so there's research uh, that comes out of the United States that states and indicates that Black students, when taught by at least one Black teacher, their desire to attend college and university significantly jumps. Wow. Significantly. You know, we have qualitative data that speaks to how Black students feel when they are taught by Black educators. You know, the students report that they feel seen, they feel understood, they feel cared for, they feel as though that they're held to a higher standard and they're, they're expected to perform well and they respond positively to these things. We're creating the environment for students to learn. But on the flip side is that it's also important to note some of the harms that exist when Black and Indigenous students are expected to navigate predominantly white educational spaces. Right. Yes. Right. And so, you know, one of the pieces is, you know, a phrase term around the adultification of Black students, particularly Black girls. And so where Black children are seen as older, they're seen as less innocent and less deserving of care and support from educators. Hmm. There is research that points to Black children are punished more harshly for the same behaviors that non-Black, non-Indigenous students commit. Right? And we see this the reproduction of those very same outcomes in the criminal justice system. Hmm. We have research that points to, overwhelmingly, where white educators interpret the facial expressions of Black children as being angry and upset. And so the implication of that is that that informs how that teacher will evaluate, assess, and support those students. So there's a positive to this, right? But we have to also talk about the harms when we're sending 
Black and Indigenous students into predominantly white spaces that are what? Inherently racist, mm-hmm. right? And the other part that I want to come to is around the mental health pieces and what it does to sort of our cognitive functioning when we are in spaces where we feel as though we're under threat. Right when we perceive as though we are under threat, right? And this, we're expecting students to come into these spaces yeah. and learn. learn mm-hmm. but, and, and so so let's pull no punches. They are in spaces where they are under threat. And so one of the things that can happen is that these same students end up in fight or flight mode, right? right? Same as any adult. And so what are the, some of the things that happen in fight or flight mode? Well, our cognitive functioning is diminished, mm-hmm. One of the other things that happens, so, and, and so we're expecting students to learn, yeah. right? <laughs> um, one of the other things that happens is the release or the more regular release of cortisol. So cortisol as a hormone in short bursts isn't bad for you. Yeah. It helps to deal with inflammation of tissue. But the prolonged sort of release of cortisol, the tissue becomes resistant it remains inflamed. And so inflammation of the tissue is kind of the, the basis or the root for many diseases or much disease. Mm-hmm. It's not a surprise or it's not a coincidence when we see Black and Indigenous bodies experience pieces at higher rates, such as high blood pressure, hypertension, da 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 da, da. So these are some of the mental and physiological impacts, as well as the student outcome impacts of when our school compositions, when our school boards, our educators, and all of the roles and such are not reflective of our student population and the demographics of the community. Hmm. I think a lot of us can easily mm-hmm. talk about the positives, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, not just the role models, but the fact that, you know, diverse teachers would bring approaches mm-hmm. to teaching and learning that are necessary and relevant to all students. But mm-hmm. I think it is really important that you also highlighted the harms that come from not talking about this. So what kind of structural changes are needed for school jurisdictions to hire, retain, and promote more Black, Indigenous, and people of color as educators or leaders mm-hmm. within their, their school boards? Great question. And I think There are things that we can do, and I don't think that they're short-term fixes. No, no. But one of the things is, I think we always have to have a plan, right? There can't be one-offs or anything like that. And I think, again, in the healthy school framework, there's discussion in that around not having one-offs, right? So I think boards of education will need to have a plan around the recruitment and the retention. I think it's important around the collection of metrics, who's applying for roles and tracking through every stage of the recruitment process, who's making it in and who's not making it in. Mm -hmm. We need to think about where are we posting? Where are we recruiting, right? Are we just going through our standard regular places, right? Or are we finding ways to really get to the particular communities that we're trying to get to? Do we have relationships with those communities far before we're going to go ask people? Right. Is there an outreach component to this? Are we working with faculties of education? Da, 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 to try to get more people in the pipeline. The other thing I think is really important around, you know, what can school boards do um, when we're looking to bring more Black and Indigenous educators into the system is that, you know, our system was racist before they got here. And then we could simply look to bring in a whole bunch of Black and Indigenous educators into that same racist system. Like, cause just the inclusion of Black bodies, just the inclusion of Indigenous bodies doesn't equate to the elimination of racism and racist outcomes, right? right? It's one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So if that space is still violent, then you're just bringing these Black and Indigenous bodies into that violent space. So there definitely needs to be work around the elimination of and what are the support mechanisms that are going to be put in place when ultimately those new Black, Indigenous, and racialized educators that you bring into the system are going to experience racism. And when they do experience it, how are we supporting them? So I I think that there is value in having targets. You know, people don't want to talk about this, right? But again, when you have a plan, how do we know that we're going to get there? So for example, 
in the board that I work in, in a Peel District School Board, in our most recent staff census uh, and student census, or staff census was done around 2016, so it's a little dated right now. And uh, our most recent student census, I believe, was or at least the results were 2020. Uh, I think it might have been done 2019. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere <laughs> around. Our staff sort of population of educators were something like 67% white. Yeah. But our student population was something like 88, 86% racialized. Wow. That's a significant problem. So boards also need to be doing a staff census on a regular frequency. So we have a sense of, what is the breakdown of our staff composition? What does that look like in relation to our student population? And are we setting targets and then putting in the programs that getting us towards those targets so we're more in line with what our student population looks like? Because we already know what the research says. Yes. So based on those results, your district put into place some targets Mm -hmm. and now some actions to meet those targets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have put in some plans. Yeah. We're not at the stage of where we, truth telling, we have not put in targets. Right? Okay. Are we going to get that far? I don't know. I'm just, you know, my own personal opinion. I think that there's value in, in significantly looking at targets in relation to the difference between our staff population and our student population. Mm-hmm. Right? And here's the reason why I think, think targets are really important. Because none of these processes are neutral. Right. Again, like this idea of neutrality is a fallacy. Right. It's just not true. And so when we look at all sorts of data around recruitment and hiring, we see that black racialized and indigenous bodies tend to be less successful at every stage of the process compared to their white counterparts. But we also see in some research out there that even when Black and Indigenous bodies come to the table with more skills, with more experience. They're still receiving less callbacks and they're being less successful at every stage of the process. And so, you know, we just can't be like, oh, well, we're going to go through a process where we're going to promote and try to recruit. No, I think we actually have to have some targets, right? Mm -hmm. And dispel the myth that somehow the only way racialized and indigenous bodies, the only way they get in is that we're lowering standards. There's no lowering of standards. What we're doing is that we're trying to eliminate the barriers that keep those highly qualified people out. Yeah. There's some research out of Toronto that looks at callbacks and resumes, white sounding names, black sounding names, right? And this has been replicated time and time again. But this one was really interesting because it looked at criminalities, right? And and I think it might have been the first time that this was sort of a variable that was included in. And so when they looked at who was getting callbacks is that white sounding names with criminalities on their resume receive phone calls back at a greater rate than Black-sounding resumes without criminalities. So that same sort of experiment has been replicated in countries across the world. And so there's this idea, this notion that Canada, we're not racist, we don't have racism. And all those. So, so there, I believe it was Northwestern, they sort of did a meta level analysis of about nine countries that did this test. And I can't remember who was more racist. I can't remember who was number one. But what I can tell you is that Canada was more discriminatory in their practices than the United States in the meta-analysis. So, you know, so this idea, this myth that we're not just as, if not more racist than some of the other places or our cousins to the South, again, is, is a fallacy. So what can school boards be doing in regards to trying to ensure that their staff population is reflective of their student population is we have to put a plan in place. Um, It has to be able to be measured, tracked, and evaluated. And we have to dispel the myth that somehow the only way to get non-white bodies in the space is because we're lowering standards. Absolutely. Those are, those are your Mm -hmm. calls to action listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I know we're probably slowly running out of time, but if, if you can afford us a few more minutes, I wanted to Mm -hmm. quickly talk about curriculum. So what importance does curriculum play in creating healthy school communities and, and, you know, schools, 
communities that center anti-racism. Yeah, I think significantly, majorly important Mm -hmm. in in a myriad of ways. But I think, again, if we're trying to disrupt, you know, white supremacy, if we're trying to not normalize whiteness, then what we learn is key. Yeah. Who are the authors that we're learning from? What are the histories that we're learning? All of those things come in play to help turn this thing on its head. And I think it's also important that white students are learning from Black scholars and Black authors or Indigenous scholars and Indigenous authors. You know, the images that we're seeing aren't just about able-bodied, uh, mm-hmm. able-white-bodied folks, right? Like we're seeing a diversity in, in abilities, in orientation, in faith, and all of those sorts of pieces. Because then what it says is that I too matter. Yeah. So I think the curriculum piece is key in all of this because it's where we have another opportunity where young people, where students can see themselves in the things that they're learning and and that their bodies are of value. And start to kind of have those critical conversations like right within the classroom Mm -hmm. to kind of really dismantle and, and talk about racism and sexism and classism and ableism and homophobia. Those should be conversations had. That educators can play a key role in, in facilitating. Mm-hmm. You can start building those skill sets from early, right? We don't have to be waiting till, you know, till they're teenagers, right? Mm-hmm. I know I read a couple articles on the EdCan website, one written mm-hmm. by, I think her name is Kim Snyder and, and mm-hmm. her journey of making over the reading list for her class mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, diversify the book list. So I'll yeah. share that in the show notes. Awesome. So I think you've given throughout all the questions, you know, lots of ways for our system leaders to start mm-hmm. to approach school health through anti-racism. I think mm-hmm. some big themes were community, you know, connect with the community, learn from the community, use them as a resource, consult experts, and, you know, really start to look at data. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? There's a couple things, right? There's a framework here. First things foremost, it would be the acknowledgement of. The acknowledgement that, yes, these spaces were built on and continue to be inherently racist. Let's not pretend. Mm-hmm. Number two is that we're not going to be able to do this work without strong community partnership and community leadership. We're not going to do this alone, full stop. Mm-hmm. We need to look at accountability measures, and those accountability measures need to be implemented, and they need to be exercised, and they need to be communicated throughout the system so people know how to access those accountability measures. Mm-hmm. The use of disaggregated race-based data is absolutely key, but to support that is who is a part of the development of the framework, who's going to be part of the analysis and usage of that particular data is just as important as the collection of the data. Mm-hmm. There needs to be transparent monitoring and reporting. So all of these anti-racism initiatives, we need to be evaluating. Are they doing the things that we said that they were going to do? If great, what are those things? If not, why not? And there needs to be a regular communication back to the community and the school community around those things. And lastly, you know, these changes absolutely need to be codified, right? It just can't be because, you know, Rohan is passionate about that. There needs to be policy and the implementation of that policy so that if Rohan goes, you know, if Caitlin goes or whomever it is that goes, the the culture around it stays and it's it's codified and it's rooted in policy. And so those are the things that I want to leave the listeners with and school communities as they sort of do this work and, and, and move along this journey. That's a great list. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Uh, And just lastly, this whole series is a Mm -hmm. bit of an introduction to the new Canadian Healthy School Standards. Mm -hmm. What value do you do you see this document and these standards having in supporting educational leaders in approaching this work? Yeah, I think there's significant value, and I, I I think right off the top, it provides a framework. Yeah. I think there are individuals. I think that there are schools. I think that there are boards that want to engage in this work. They don't have a sense or a pathway on how to do that. And so I think the standards and the framework that is provided, I think it gives people a pathway on Mm -hmm. an entrance point and how to to get into it. Me in particular, uh, I love the fact that you guys speak to not only the implementation components, but the evaluative components. Mm -hmm. But again, I think 
we do a great job of creating programs. Yeah. Uh, we, we do a horrific job of measuring those programs. And ultimately, that it's a disservice to students, right? So I think from the framework perspective, for me, one of the big pieces is the evaluative sort of discussion that occurs in it. So, so in this entire discussion, I think the, the framework and the standards are very supportive and are a good guidance or an entry point for people to, to get into this work. Wonderful. Yeah, I agree. And you know, it, it, it definitely doesn't have all the answers, like mm-hmm. those tips that you gave, but it, you know, it talks about the importance of professional learning mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the process of these things. So I agree. And that, that's good to hear that you saw that as well. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for your time, Rohan, for mm-hmm. our listeners out there. We had a little technical struggles uh, getting started, but we made it through. We made it all the way to the end. I will liaise with uh, Rohan um, offline to collect some links to any resources that he might want to share. And I'll mm-hmm. link to a few articles that I found really helpful on EdCan. These conversations aren't always easy, but they are necessary. I know Mm -hmm. our listeners out there, just like the Alliance, are working every day towards creating healthy school communities, schools where our students and staff thrive, where values of equity, inclusion, and respect are front and center. So I hope that this episode will support some you know, really important reflection Mm -hmm. and action steps for system leaders as they work toward this. So thank you again, Rohan, for your time. This was great. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for joining this podcast elective series, System Leadership in Healthy Schools, brought to you by the Canadian Healthy Schools Alliance. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. You can follow the Alliance on Twitter at CDN School Health or on LinkedIn by searching Canadian Healthy Schools Alliance. You can also visit our website, healthyschoolsalliance.ca for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed.